Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm so glad to have you here. Today on the show, I am answering your questions about opening up relationships and BDSM, but I'm not answering them alone. I am honored to share my interview with registered clinical counselor, Sarah Watson, who helps me navigate your questions surrounding trauma and sexuality. But first, today in sex. It's almost Pride Month, which basically means my Instagram and TikTok are filled with like rainbow flags and folks trying to sell adorable Pride merch. Honestly, I almost bought a very cute pair of bisexual pride earrings, Uh, but lately I've been thinking a lot about queerness and what it means for me to show up in queer spaces. As Levi and I prepare to head out on a year-long adventure through the United States, down into Mexico, and then finish up by driving across Canada, I recognize the immense privilege that I have in being straight passing. Not everyone gets to live in a queer mecca like Victoria, where we actually have the highest number of trans and non-binary folks living here than anywhere else in Canada. And honestly, it's been a really wonderful place to come into my queerness over the past decade and to feel relatively safe um, in being open about my sexuality. But as we travel into these various communities across Turtle Island, I feel like my queerness will need to shift and adapt in order to keep me and Levi safe. And I know that that is a privilege that I have that many do not. As we contend with these outdated ideas about sexual health education and abortion in the States, my pride as a queer person and as a sexual health educator, it's not diminished, but it will definitely be challenged. Levi and I are hoping to attend Pride events and support queer artists, community groups, and educators along the way, as well as to feature some badass sexual health educators and advocates here on this podcast. So, as we prepare to circumnavigate Turtle Island, if you know of any amazing folks that should be featured on this podcast, please get in touch. Send me an email to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com, or you can message me directly on Instagram at dr.leatidy. And wherever it is you may be, may you hold your pride in your heart and wherever possible on your sleeve, or through face paint or cute by pride earrings, really whatever works for you. Now, before I share my interview with Sarah Watson, I want to offer a trigger warning. Now, for longtime listeners of the podcast, you know that I don't normally do trigger warnings because it can be difficult to gauge which conversations about sexuality will spark different emotions for people. However, in today's interview, Sarah and I are answering callers' questions that deal with self-harm and sexual assault. I specifically chose to answer these questions with Sarah as a clinical counselor and not on my own. So I invite you to check in with yourself. Take deep breaths, take a break, whatever you need while listening. You'll also hear us remind you of that multiple times throughout our discussion. Also, we have compiled a list of resources that are available in the episode description and on my website, so please check them out. As always, thank you for being here and listening to this podcast. I'm really excited to share this important conversation with Sarah Watson. Hello, Sarah Watson. How are you doing today? I'm feeling really great. I'm so excited to be here chatting with you. I'm so excited too. We've it's so funny how uh you know, you realize the world of sexual health is so small. Uh and also the theater world. Like I'm amazed that we're just like meeting now even though we were at theater school, same school, same time, but you know, you were you were a cool fourth year and I was just starting, so I was like all dewy-eyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's so funny how much we've overlapped. And then what actually brought us together was our mother's meeting. <laughs> right. And our mom's being like, I met this very cool girl and she does the same kind of work as you. I'm like, yes, mom, I need you to make me new friends and colleagues. Thank you. I love it. At 30, my mom's still, you know, giving me a little bit of help there. Yeah. Absolutely. Nepotism. I'm, I'm going to use it for as long as I can. Right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm so glad that we finally, the fact that those circles, you know, overlap so much too in the world of sexual health or counseling and theater is wild. There's a lot of us from UVic that have ended up in that place. 
Yeah, a lot of theater nerds become sex educators, therapists, counselors. I think there's something something about it. I don't know. We we could go on a whole diatribe about maybe it's about the weird intimacy things that we experience in theater school that we realize, aha, we should become sex educators because, whoo, that was complicated. <laughs> yeah, when you live, work, play with all the same little cohort for four years. Uh, gets interesting. Yeah. Interesting, messy. Anyway. <laughs> it's a learning experience. Yeah, for sure. Um, so do you want to uh, introduce yourself a bit of like, you know, how did you get to where you are now? Because I know there's a tons of folks who want to work in sexual health and I people are always interested in that journey. So tell us a bit about you. Yeah. So like you said, I'm Sarah Watson. Um, went to theater school originally. So I went to UVic, got my Bachelor of Fine Arts, um, which was sort of a sporadic decision in itself in my life. I applied to one school. Uh, my mom was a theater teacher and I did drama in high school. So it just felt like a good fit. Mm-hmm. So I followed that path. Um, but once I graduated, it just something felt not quite right, not quite like a fit, although I loved it. Um, So I went through a bit of an early 20s midlife crisis and didn't know what I totally wanted to do. So I was just working at an insurance company for a couple of years. Um, And during that period of time, I had actually come out as a queer woman and you don't meet a lot of women uh, in insurance. So I started volunteering (laughs) at the local crisis line, like mental health support line, um, to meet girls. Ultimately, Um, I thought, you know, that's where all the cool chicks are going to be hanging out is, you know, mental health support, not for profit. Um, And although I didn't meet a romantic partner there, I did make a lot of great female friendships. But I think the best thing I got out of that was stumbling into discovering this world of mental health and counseling support. Um, And so I met some great folks there who were in the UBC master's program for counseling psychology. And a big reason why a lot of people volunteered at the crisis line was for that recommendation letter to get into the program. So I had already taken the step towards getting my master's without knowing it. Um, And I had a couple of people just help me through the process, go to school And then even when I was there, when I was at UBC, it's a great program, wouldn't change it. Um, But there was always just this piece missing. Like we had one elective for sex and gender and it wasn't even a required course. And I just remember being like, this is so wild. Everybody who's going to walk into the counseling room is a sexual person, a relational person, having their own experience of gender. Like it just felt like a huge missing piece. Um, so after I graduated, I really knew I needed to seek out some more training, some more like-minded folks. And I saw a job posting for a sex therapy center Mm. and in the job posting, it said, uh, no experience required in the field of sex therapy, but must have a willingness to get training. And I just thought, Hey, you know what? I applied to one school, did theater. It led me to this path. Um, I actually got into UBC off the wait list. Like it's just been this sort of kismet journey. I said, you know what? I'm just going to apply. I haven't done any of this training, but they seem open. And in my interview, it was just this perfect match. Like me and the clinical director had this great chat and I just fell in love with the world of sex therapy. Like she was describing what they work on around desire and non-monogamy and kink and BDSM and sexual shame and all of these pieces. And I just felt that feeling like, you know, that feeling in your gut where you're just like, Ooh, this is right. Yeah. I see you smiling, nodding. You definitely know (laughs) what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so I just started working there. It was my first job out of my master's and from there sought out some training programs in the world of sex therapy. There's um, a registering um, like official certification that you can get. It's called ASECT. Um, And so a lot of training programs offer ASECT courses So I've taken a sex therapy certificate. I did a sex therapist program through the University of Guelph. And then just learning with me and my colleagues, I feel like I've really uh, embodied this 
supportive, sexual, open uh, role with people that I think I was always kind of meant to do. Mm. I love hearing that. And yeah, like seeing your face talk about it as well, right? Just that journey. I think so often people are like, well, how did you get to be where you are now? And quite often it's not like, you know, you have a goal and you write it down, you tack it up on the wall. It's you kind of arrive there. But I so resonate with you in the as soon as I was doing my sexual educator training, I was like, this is right. This is that missing piece. And that theater training has been so helpful in terms of you know, feeling comfortable facilitating conversations with people, feeling, you know, learning how to articulate yourself well. But yeah, like just those pieces, you know, when they land in your body, you're like, yes, this is what I meant to be doing. Um, and so amazing that you could go into a job that would support you on your learning journey as well. I feel like that's, I mean, one of the things that when you find that passion that you have and you want to keep learning about it, it's so amazing when you're you know, employer can help you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you know what's funny? I'm, I'm, I'm going a little bit off script here because I, I, I was just thinking about ASECT and I, I just did a interview with Paul Nelson through uh, Maze Men's Health, and we were talking about erectile dysfunction and sexual shame, and and he really focuses on like men, on like cisgender men. That's his, as he said, he s- stays in his lane. That's what he does. But what was really interesting, and he's a uh, sex therapist, but also a sexual health educator, and he said, everyone needs sexual health education. He's like, I think we don't get enough of that. He's like, everyone, like, should get therapy. I don't know, like, a couple months, and then they'll be fine. But, like, everyone really needs sex education. And I wonder your thoughts on that. Like, I I mean, I agree. I think we all need sex education. But is sex therapy – I th- he was kind of – almost creating like this dichotomy of like, yeah, sex therapy is great, but do we all really need it as a sex therapist thoughts? That's such a good question. I do a lot of education in the room, Mm. you know, sitting with people and really gently and, and compassionately pointing out some of these gaps. And what I've noticed is people know Uh, People will come in and say, I didn't get sex education. It wasn't talked about in the home. I was shamed by my peers, you know, and it's this beautiful opportunity to hold the education pieces that we missed, which could just be anatomy, but could also be like how our desire works, alternative relationship styles. Um, But I think the benefit of doing that in a sex therapy context is there's a lot of emotion that comes with that. Mm-hmm. the grief of what wasn't taught shame that you absorbed from society and, and this, you know, progressive, but still quite sex negative environment that we can grow up in. So I think being able to hold the space for all the emotions that come with that um, is a really beautiful opportunity for me um, when that education and therapy can be really blended. Cause then it's like, well, what do I do next? Now that I know. I think that's an excellent point too. And I feel uh, as someone who I'm very clear with people, I'm like, I am not a therapist and I'm not a counselor. I feel like a lot of people will ask questions. They don't know who else to ask them to. And we will get to that later because I'm like, oh, I'm not going to answer these questions on my own. (laughs) He's a juicy. Um, But, you know, as an educator, quite often it's my job to hold the space for everyone that's in the room. But there are a lot of emotions that come up. And how do I adequately address those when, you know, I'm, I'm teaching 30, 50, 60, sometimes 300 people on like an online setting or in person, whereas therapy, that intimacy and that ability to go deeper and talk about the manifestations of not receiving sex education and what does that look like throughout our lives? So maybe sex education is our bedrock, but until that is really comprehensive for all of us, we're all going to need sex therapy at some point in our lives. (laughs) Personal bias, having gone to a sex therapist. Oh my gosh, it's so wonderful. I love it so much. Oh, great. Yeah. No, that bedrock, it's true. It's like, you don't know what you don't know until you know. and from that place, then how has your unique experience been impacted um, from this like new collective foundational understanding? 
yeah, I learned new things. You know, when I started this job as a sex therapist, I mean, I was always like the horny friend who was teaching everyone how to give a hand job or, you know, where to get good online porn. But I learned a lot about my own desire, my own sexual shame through this, you know, and it was my job title was sex therapist. And and there was so much sexual health education that I have gained from this role. So I, I agree. Everyone could use a little support there. Absolutely. And ongoing support, right? I think there's an assumption that because that's like you said, that's your job title. People are like, well, you've got it all figured out. And I'm like, I <laughs> definitely still working through a lot of my own, my own biases and shame and everything else. But, you know, to be able, I just feel very fortunate that my career also like benefits me personally every day. Like I learn and expand constantly. And you're like nodding your head like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes a blessing, sometimes a challenge, but I mean, like I said, and it sounds like for you too, I just couldn't do anything else. Yeah. So talk to me a bit about, I'm always trying to destigmatize therapy and be like, therapy is so great. And of course, there's many different ways that we can go about it, but maybe tell me a bit about your own uh, practice and maybe we can cover like some of the terms that we'll be kind of using today, but that you would like use in a typical session with someone. Yeah. Yeah. So like you said, there's so many styles of therapy and I'm of course biased towards mine. Um, I'm a somatic attachment therapist. So to most folks that probably doesn't mean much. Um, So maybe it's helpful to kind of break down somatic and then break down attachment to somatic therapy is a therapy that aims to really connect the mind and body. So a lot of focus in the room on tuning into the physical experience of emotions and really working moment to moment with what is coming up, including uh, in the relationship between me and my clients. And to me, this way of working in sex therapy is so relevant because we also experience arousal in our body, desire in our body. We feel our boundaries and our no in our body. So to be able to really connect that is just so much good information, so helpful to regulate our emotions. And that probably sounds really scary saying it out loud. Like it, it it's um, a really, really vulnerable process. And so I think to anyone who would be nervous for that kind of therapy, I would say really all you're doing when you walk in the therapy room is you're building an attachment, a relationship to a new person who has spent a lot of time learning how to be a safe person to attach to, and that they're there to really hold that process with you. Something I find myself saying to a lot of clients is like, there is no right way to do therapy. There is no way to win therapy or to get an A plus in the same way. There's no way to fail therapy. And so with somatic therapy, that moment to moment tracking of just what coming up, let's feel it in the body. Let's talk about if there's memories or content or thoughts coming with that um, is to me, I think this really beautiful experience of Uh, experiencing safe attachment with another person and being really held. And so then attachment being how we bond emotionally to others. Mm -hmm. So this starts with our primary caregivers. That's our first attachment. So the therapist almost becomes like a surrogate caregiver and it's a transitional role. You know, although some people might be in therapy for their lives, it's, there's the boundaries, it's, you're paying, you're showing up, you leave at the end of the day, you know, you're often not in contact between sessions, but therapists can become this like transitional caregiver figure where um, if in those early attachment relationships to our caregivers, which could be a parent, it could be a significant um, caregiver, whether that's um, through adoption, fostering, you spend a lot of time with a nanny or in daycare, uh, family members. Um, If there were ruptures in that care that we received in those early attachments, our ability to attach to others in adulthood can be really impacted. Um, So if our caregiver wasn't present, even inconsistently, they weren't tuned into us or they were smothering, they were overly available, we didn't get that independence. If they were completely absent um, or abusive, of course, right, that there's these huge ruptures to our attachment and our ability to connect safely 
And so if, if you relate to any of what I'm describing, or you've heard of like attachment styles, you know, anxious attachment, avoided attachment, really ultimately going into therapy is you're building a new attachment with someone trained to attach safely. And that can be a really healing reparative experience to then explore really vulnerable, intimate, maybe traumatic content. Yeah. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Absolutely. You know, I, I'm in the process of reading Poly Secure right now. And the first half of the book, oh, it's so good. Uh, Right? Even if folks are monogamous, if you're not interested in polyamory, Poly Secure is an excellent book because this part one is all about attachment theory. And the way that Jessica Fern writes it is so accessible because I've learned about, I've taught attachment styles before, and I feel like it didn't really land in my body until I was reading this book. And I think what's really interesting is people are like, well, I'm have fearful or avoidant or, you know, attachment styles. I'm like, well, that's just who I am now. And she really unpacks and that's, and just, you know, resonating what you're saying, how therapy can help you have that earned secure attachment style, right? That even if you didn't experience that, as a child in those, you know, primary caregiver experiences doesn't mean that you can't as an adult create that secure attachment can create healthy boundaries and feel really safe and secure in the relationships that you're building. I think some people might think that it's a foregone conclusion. They're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm fucked up from this experience or this childhood and now I can't do anything about it. It's like, well, there are processes. And so you talking about somatic attachment therapy, I'm just like, oh, like the, I feel so often we just don't fully land in our bodies when we're feeling these big feelings and we just don't know how to process them. Or when they're coming up, we try and intellectualize without going through moment to moment and getting into those, I don't know, those kind of really juicy, but intense things to feel, especially if you're not used to feeling them or feeling safe when you were going through those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I will give the biggest shout out to the book attached. It was really the first like foundation for some of this attachment theory and research. But my biggest criticism is that the message that that book tends to give is that it's unfixable, unchangeable. So I would totally agree. Polysecure is my go-to recommendation for anyone wanting to read more. Yeah, because a huge role of those, those caregivers, that primary relationship is that as children, we don't actually have the ability to regulate our emotions and our big feelings. You need a caregiver to come in there and get in there with you to help you regulate. Mm-hmm. And if your caregiver didn't do that, whether that was... The parenting style of that day and age didn't highlight that or their caregivers didn't regulate them or they just didn't know. Like you think of like the cry it out method that Mm. was hugely popular, but what you're actually doing is leaving that child alone with this really intense physical, emotional experience. And so tapping back into that body experience of our emotions is so scary. And then that's why that therapist is there as that surrogate caregiver, that person to help you regulate and teach you how to start doing that as an adult. It's totally changeable. Attachment can be absolutely earned and shifted. We attach differently to all different people in our lives. So yeah, I'm holding that hope and really want to reinforce that message you've shared that none of this is a terminal diagnosis or a broken, unfixable thing at all. I see it every day changing. Right. Oh, and that's amazing. And and also, like you said, like scary, really hard emotional work to, to tap into. Um, I find after any of my therapy sessions, I mean, a, I usually cry through them. I'm surprised my therapist can understand anything that I'm saying. Um, she's excellent though. I'm like, thank you so much. Um, but at the end, I, I need to like either keep crying or have a nap or to do something to like look after myself because it feels like I have, you know, like just worked out for an hour because I have like my body is processing so many things that I just need to rest and be so kind because, you know, yeah, it's the equivalent. Uh, not that I've ever like, I don't like to run. I'm going to be honest. I'm not a runner, but it feels like I've just run a 10K or something. And I'm like, wow, I'm so proud of myself for this work that I've done. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so often when we're alone, when we get into that really intense experience, right? Like you're describing, I'm just crying and crying, and crying. We'll do something to cut it off. Mm-hmm. Like we'll numb out on our phone or 
use substances or distract ourselves or socialize or, you know, we do things that really cut ourselves off in the height of that experience. And so what a gift you're giving yourself to just continue crying and let that experience abate and rest and treat your body. I think that that's so great and um, a huge important part of what will make therapy safer for people is, you know, that aftercare, that self-care, like a good BDSM session. Everybody needs aftercare. Everybody aftercare after any sort of intense um, you know, experience that you're, that you're having. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to briefly say it's making me think about, uh, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski and just how we need to complete those, those stress cycles, right? And if, like you said, if you're cutting it off right at the height of this really intense emotion, uh, then you're just, your body is going to keep in that highly agitated or stressful state and you never get to complete that cycle. So, you know, for some people after that, I don't know, like it can be like an orgasm that helps complete that cycle, or it can be a a walk or a sleep or something like that to just help us regulate those big things that are, that are happening. So I'm so excited that you're here because there's two questions that I've been, I've been sitting on for a while. Um, and listeners who sent them in, I so appreciate you sending in voice messages. And so I hold them very dearly and I try and make sure that I'm getting the right people to answer them with me. So we're going to play two uh, two questions, one around non-monogamy and trauma and one around BDSM and trauma. But I really want to kind of hone in on what we were just saying there about how, particularly as children, if we're not um, taught how to regulate those emotions or we experience a trauma as children, that can be something that's really hard to unpack. And so people who are listening right now, just to really be aware that we are going to be uh, talking about trauma. We're going to be unpacking some big feelings. I feel like the, the two of us are prepared to do this. And also I wouldn't do this by myself, right? I feel like having a therapist to go through this is really important. So people who are listening, this is to say right now, whatever you need to do to look after yourself, it's going to be primarily educational uh, because it's not like we have the people in the room with us who send in these questions, but just to have that kind of that framing around care and looking after yourself, whatever you need to do, if you need to pause, lay down, you know, go for a walk while you listen, whatever is kind of uh, working for you in that moment. Maybe that's my offer. Trigger warning does, I don't, because I never really know, especially when it comes to sex, you never know what's going to come up for people, but this is our, our offer to do what you need to do to look after yourself. Anything you want to add to that, Sarah, before I play the first one? No, that's beautiful. Yeah, what you said, just take care of yourself. And sometimes we don't notice that we're starting to dysregulate or get a little agitated, activated while we're listening. Um, So I I would add just at the end of the episode, or if you have to pause, just take a moment, check in with yourself. Maybe don't rush off to your next thing if you notice some of that coming up. Okay, we're going to start with the non monogamy question. I'm just going to play that now. Hi, Leah. So I'm a 23-year-old cisgender female, and my partner is a 25-year-old cisgender male, and we've been dating for almost two years now. So I grew up in a pretty traditional and religious household, uh, and I was also sexually assaulted when I was young, and I'm just now exploring my trauma behind that and understanding what that means for me. And on the other side, my partner has had a more positive sexual experience growing up. Uh, And so before he met me, he was single for most of his life. So he's, he was able to freely explore his sexuality. And even when he was in a long-term relationship, although it was a toxic on and off type of relationship, he did have a lot of sex with his past partner almost every day. And so I do have a lower sex drive for sure. For me, once a month is enough. But for him, ideally, it would be three to four times a week. And in between the times that we do have sex, uh, masturbation is 
not enough for him, you know, and he's definitely expressed his sexual needs and his frustrations and his fantasies to me. And even though he does love me, he said that he can have this like very intense desires to have sex with other people and have other types of sex with other people. And, you know, it, it definitely made me uncomfortable. I don't think I was fully prepared to hear something like that. And after really exploring my past and trauma and trying to deal with it, I, I've kind of become more insecure and I've even become jealous, which I've never experienced before in my past relationships. So it, it's kind of made me feel like I've never or I will never be enough for him. And sometimes I feel really broken, like there's something wrong with me. And I feel I can feel disgusted with myself when I think about what happened to me, even though I know those things are out of my control and it's not my fault. You know, it's, it still hurts. And so trying to resolve our problem, we've kind of talked about opening up our relationship and introducing a non-monogamous relationship. You know, I was very open to it at first, but I've kind of realized that it's not what I want right now, nor is it something I'm prepared for, but it's something that I would want for my partner because he clearly, it would clearly be helpful for him to explore his sexual desires in that way. And so my questions for you are that, one, where does jealousy really come from? And is this something that I can, I guess, quote unquote, fix or get past? And so that way we can explore a non-monogamous relationship? Or is this a rightful boundary that I have for myself? And is it okay that I just want to be monogamous, especially right now? And regarding my partner and his sexual desires, like, would it be better for him to find another partner? Or should he try to be patient with me when I'm trying to deal with my trauma and uh, finding my sexuality? Because, you know, I, I do want to explore my sexual self, but it's kind of hard when... I have to deal with my trauma and I don't always have the luxury of time and therapy to focus on it, you know, and I'm also currently finishing up school and trying to transition into employment. So it's also a very stressful time in my life. And I have, ex for me, I've accepted that this can be a very long process to deal with my trauma and sexual journey and that it could take many years it's not like a quick fix so yeah you know neither my partner and I uh want to break up like we love each other very much but this has become a problem for us so thanks for listening thank you for your time and I can't wait to hear your response <sighs> What a beautiful person. I like I just want to emphasize immediately and echo what she said that what has happened to you is not your fault at all. And I just hear your strength and resilience and the dedication to this work and knowing it, that there isn't a quick fix. But what a gift to yourself to be starting this process. It can be so scary and hard. So wow. And then to reach out. Uh, to a podcast like it just I just am in awe of your uh bravery and the resilience that she's shown so just want to say that right off the top yeah no I agree and I think you know the first time I heard it just having to sit and kind of you just you hear so much and how like raw and vulnerable that she's being throughout it and I had to had to like take a step back and be like who having you know, experienced my own trauma. I was like, okay, how do I make sure that I'm in a good space before answering this? But yeah, just really echoing that. I, that 
that feeling, right, when she talks about the, you know, of never being enough, of feeling broken or feeling disgusted with yourself, like such awful feelings that are far too common. And it's just messed up how common it is that these are the the tropes or the the stories that we've been that we tell ourselves that we've been told by society. And, you know, she's already starting that process of kind of separating out these thoughts from actually being like herself. She's creating it. So where, where do you want to start, Sarah? I'm going to follow your lead on this one. Where do we begin? Yeah. You know, and, and just hearing that, that shame that she's describing, I want everyone listening and I want her to hear that there's nothing wrong or broken around either of their desires, you know, wanting sex three, four times a week, wanting sex once a month, that on either end of the spectrum of desire, there's nothing wrong or broken or different or uncommon about either experience. Um, And I hear her really wanting to find a resolution and stay together and that what we would call desire discrepancy is actually what brings so many couples into sex therapy together. This is such a common issue. And so I heard her talking about the jealousy piece that she's experiencing. And if I'm understanding that it, it really ramped up the more they've talked about this um, and potentially connected with that, that idea of like opening up and, you know, jealousy as an emotion is the fear of something of ours will be taken away. Mm. Envy is wanting something that someone else has. Mm. So I think that choice of the word jealousy is, is probably right for her, that there's this fear maybe of losing her partner to this imagined other or to his desire for a, a more sexually frequent relationship. Um, And that creates a huge amount of attachment distress. Like we were talking about earlier, that secure attachment, it it sounds like feels threatened. That bond is at risk here. And although I hear they both want to make it work, that the, the completely human response to that is anxiety and jealousy, possessiveness. We can get controlling, you know, we will do what we need to do to maintain that bond that's so important to us so that jealousy comes from wanting to keep your connection to your partner who you sounds like you love and care about and is such a human reaction I just like my hands on my heart for that because of course you're feeling that way I would feel that way yeah and I think like jealousy it's it's so funny how we paint it as this horrible emotion. And you're like, well, you know, feeling jealousy is not inherently like a bad thing. It's a signifier to us. And I've had a couple episodes talking about polyamory and non-monogamy because that seems to always be the first question that comes up is how do you deal with jealousy? People who are non-monogamous, are they like so evolved? They just don't feel jealousy. And I'm like, that's not, that's not the case. (laughs) Um, Having done research on it and from personal experience, it's not the case, but you know, not so much normalizing jealousy, but just saying that emotion, like you're saying, it's a very, uh, it makes sense that it is happening. And quite often it can be a signifier to us to check in on something and to be like, are there boundaries of mine that are being crossed? Is there work that, that myself, my partner or partners need to do to check in on where we're at? And I think, yeah, too often we kind of blame the person who is feeling the jealousy and not the circumstances in which is creating that feeling and how, you know, what to do with all of those big emotions that are coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It almost sounds kind of at this point, like almost like a, a polyamory, like under duress, right? Like you're saying, like that feeling of jealousy. And it's like, do I push it down because I want to maintain this attachment, maintain this relationship with this person? And is that, you know, the price of admission to be in this relationship or not? And, you know, kind of hearing from her, like, is that worth it? You know, should my partner be patient with me? Or do we just need to end this and he needs to find another partner? Not that we can obviously just like give people ad- advice. I don't know. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, I'm not you. I'm not in that situation. But what are your kind of thoughts around 
around that, around the patients, the waiting, other partners, like advice or thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the desire for your person who has been your support to be there and be present and hold that container with you while you go into this trauma work makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think the word should is so tough. Mm-hmm. Should he leave? Should he stay? Should he be patient? I mean, I sometimes think of should as like a could with shame because he could yes. leave. He could stay. He could be patient. He could be impatient. What's probably scary is that that's all out of her control. What he does or how he goes about meeting this need, but her need for a safe container and security while she goes through this really destabilizing process uh, makes so much sense to me. And I like what you said, you know, non-monogamy under duress that what's coming to mind connected almost with this piece she's sharing of like, I feel disgusted. I, I feel like I'm not enough. I feel insecure. There's something wrong with me that when we're young and this horrific trauma that she's experienced, our brains look to make sense of what is happening. But we're children. We don't we don't have a lot of experience or knowledge. And so we will unconsciously develop these protective beliefs about ourselves to maintain attachment, mm. to maintain connection. And it's so unfortunately so common that the way as children that we make sense of the unfathomable, the unspeakable is to think there's something wrong with us. Well, this must be happening because there's something wrong with me because it's intolerable to think that it's actually that the caregiver is just not available. It's actually that our caregiver is shaming us or they're not protecting us, that that is almost more intolerable than this idea of like, well, this is happening because there's something wrong with me. I can make sense of that. Mm. So there's this lasting legacy of shame that it's this old programming. It's this way that we survived was to shame ourselves. And then we kind of build frameworks on top of that. And so I just, my heart for her shame that there is nothing wrong or broken about wanting your partner to stay, about not wanting to put your relationship into this really complex uh, place of non-monogamy. And this other part of her that just really cares and wants her partner's needs to get met. And she didn't say this, but I'd hear from folks too. Like, it's a lot of pressure to know that your partner has sexual needs that you don't want to or can't meet. I mean, that's a lot of pressure and it's hard to watch someone you love feel hurt or frustrated. So I just, I see this huge tension, this huge place of conflict that she's in. And from any point of tension where there's different parts of us battling it out, shame's in the mix, guilt's in the mix, jealousy's in the mix. I mean, from that tension just comes anxiety and our worst negative thoughts. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's what I think so far. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, you're, you're talking about it. So, so beautifully. And I'm just like, let me just like recognize. I'm so glad that we're doing this together. I just, I'm I'm learning so, so much. Right. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking about this desire discrepancy and I feel like so often that is where a lot of people feel like, oh, well, if I'm going to enter into non-monogamy, this is kind of the catalyst for us talking about this because there are needs that um, either sexual, emotional, romantic, whichever, that aren't being met in this um, monogamous relationship. And so how do we, like, presto, non-monogamy might be the answer to that. But within non-monogamy, there's so much deep personal work that has to happen, right? And I've had debates about like the ethical and consensual and everything else, those, the terminology. So just kind of non-monogamy more, more broadly, we'll say, but yeah, like how, how it's not uh, a quick fix to dealing with the sexual desires that maybe aren't being met in this relationship. Because regardless of, you know, say if her partner does have, you know, sexual relationships with another person, okay, but this this is kind of, not to say that those sexual desires aren't valid, of course they are, but that's not doing anything to kind of look at the underlying 
big emotions that are coming up um, from this idea of opening up this relationship and what that's going to look like. So, and it also just sounds like she has so many other pressures and, and stressors in her life right now, like with school and with feeling mm-hmm. like, can I afford therapy? Is this something that it's like a lifelong journey? Like, is it going to be a really long process? And there's kind of uh, like, yes, and I'm like, yes, this will be a very long process. And it can be a really vulnerable, but also empowering process to go on uh, because taking that time to really sit with yourself and get uh, deeply aware of where you're at in the world is just going to open you up to, I don't know, maybe the, the possibilities of how you can feel about yourself and to kind of get away from that shame of not feeling like you are enough and just being like, no, you are, there's nothing wrong with you. And it's, it's in this experience that happened was not your fault and was not something that, you know, you could have done something different to avoid it. That's, there's nothing, that line of thinking is not going to get you anywhere within that. So I wonder, uh, before we kind of close this one and not even to close, just to say it's an <laughs> ongoing process. Cause how, how could you ever close that? But I wonder if any, um, I don't know, some like some thoughts. I don't know if like encouragement or advice or something to kind of feel like, ah, I don't know, like movement or things that, that she could do to kind of maybe start to unpack or kind of sit with these emotions in herself. Mm-hmm. Such a good question. I mean, reading Polysecure. <laughs> Great place to start. <laughs> read and read and read more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think if anything, maybe seeing the desire discrepancy as not the problem here. I mean, this sounds like a real struggle with attachment that desire discrepancy can be addressed in sex therapy, you know, often fairly easily. When we look at, you know, come as you are, Emily Nagoski, like the breaks, the inhibitors to sex and past trauma is a big break to sex and it can get in the way, you know, because if we're just talking about the sexual incompatibility and we remove the attachment piece, often with couples, I pose the idea of why not a sex worker? There's just a sexual need to be met that, um, the the perceived risk of the emotional attachment, the emotional bond, the additional partner um, can be completely removed uh, by just working with a sex worker. Um, What comes to mind is Sue Johnson. She's sort of the mother of emotion-focused therapy, which is really attachment-based. Her definition of a secure attachment is an acronym. She says, are you there for me? So R, A-R-E, are you accessible? Are you responsive? And are you engaged? And so what I hope for this person and her relationship is that before they move into something that could be so destabilizing and stir so much is really looking at, are they accessible to each other? Are they responsive? And are they engaged with everything that's coming up around this? Because if they do step into non-monogamy, that will be the strong, secure foundation to do so. And if those, if there's gaps or if there's certain pieces of that that aren't available right now, um, I would say, you know, sitting in that for a bit and, and just staying in this place of curiosity and exploration because um, she's doing some really deep deep personal work that is so important um you know and being accessible responsive and engaged with ourselves mm-hmm. too right she just sounds so ready and present um to do this work and so i'm i'm completely confident that she's going to find some relief and some progress with what she's working on no matter which way they choose to go mm. Thank you for that. Oh my gosh. And of course, you know, folks, I'm going to have everything listed in the episode description, all of the like books and resources and everything else that we're mentioning. Don't worry, it will all be accessible for you because we won't leave you hanging because it's oh, such good stuff. Okay, I feel like 
deep breath. Shake it off. Shake it off. Whew. Now we're ready to talk about BDSM. Let's do it. Um, uh, briefly for folks, um, we've had conversations about BDSM before, uh, but BDSM stands for bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadism and masochism. And of course, you know, there's going to be links in the episode description and on the website to unpack those. But let's listen to the second caller and the question that they have. Hi, Leah. I'm non-binary and pansexual. I'm also from Argentina, so I'm really, really sorry about my awful English. So I love BDSM, but I think that this love started actually because of the hate I had or have for myself. I harmed myself several times and I wish today a few times too. I don't say this to play victim, but only to show that I think that this was the trigger that started my interest for that kind of things. I also have many, many problems with sex. So BDSM had, in fact, a positive side on my sex life. I was able to experiment with pleasure beyond penetration, right? But many sexual partners I had actually thought that the best way for me to have a healthy sex was erasing the BDSM part of it. But I actually like it. So the question is, can I break this toxic bond between these two concepts to have a healthy sex without having to give up on BDSM? And if so, how? And how can I prevent myself from using it to keep harming myself? How can I turn it into something good as it should be, right? Because it's beautiful. By the way, I love you. Thank you for giving everyone a chance to have a voice. Oh, um, please give my love to Levi. I love him too. Sending my love from Argentina. Oh, wow. The love at the end. Like, again, the first time I heard it, I like had a little... A little emotional cry moment. I'm like, oh my gosh. Caller, I love you too. Like the time that you took to like, you know, bare your soul to us. Like I just, you know, what an honor. Like as we were saying before, like, holy shit, this is our job? I'm like, yes, yeah, yes, this is the best <laughs> job in the world. Just going to talk to people about really important things. Oh, I mean, I have, have a a great article I'm going to share with people, um, it's called Sex Sessions Debunking Five Common Myths About Kink. And the great thing is there's a video, if you'd rather watch a video or read the article. And just one of the really important things is that, you know, myth number three that they talk about is how kink and BDSM uh, is always linked to trauma and abuse. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's not always the case. It can play a really important role in people kind of reclaiming their sense of control and power, uh, sometimes by, you know, simulating a really uh, traumatic experience in like a safe, consensual way. And a lot of aftercare, obviously afterwards. But the other myth that comes up is a BDSM like relationship or being interested in BDSM is inherently unhealthy. We know that that is not true. So those are those are my like disclaimers, I'm going to say right away. But I'm going to pass it to you, Sarah, like initial thoughts in, in hearing uh, in hearing this person kind of share their story and, and their questions with us. Mm-hmm. Well, I just love your listeners. Wow. I mean, the depth, the vulnerability, the love. I, I'm just I'm so excited to be engaging with your listeners. And I mean, this call is shared like I have hate for myself. I've harmed myself. I wish to die. And asking, you know, how do I prevent myself from using BDSM as self-harm? And so I think like, and maybe trigger warning here too, right? Let's talk about self-harm. And so maybe just a breath, (laughs) take a second, pause if you need to, any of the listeners that self-harm to me and, you know, my peers is a way to stay alive. It's a way to cope with intense emotion. We talked about cycling through the emotion and how sometimes it gets too much when we're alone. And self-harm can be a way to regulate that emotion quickly. So how 
creative, I like to say, of humans to have found this way to survive and to cope, how resilient. So I just want to send so much love to this caller because those can be really scary places to be. Mm -hmm. And when we think about self-harm as a regulation tool, a way to reduce that agitation, that intensity, BDSM can be incredibly useful in regulating emotion. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be really curious with this individual, is there a way that that you can conceptualize or or reframe or check in with yourself? Is BDSM functioning for you as a way to regulate intense emotion? And is that okay? Does that have to be harmful? It cannot be a way to complete the stress cycle. I think knowing your intention going in and sharing that with someone that you're playing with is an important part of consent. If your play partner or partners don't necessarily know that this is coming from that place for you, that might be a good conversation to have. But when you say breaking this toxic bond, I think that might start with finding a new relationship with your self-harm and your resilience and your ability to survive. And yeah, those are my initial thoughts. I'd be curious to hear what what your response is to that because I can clarify or expand. Yeah. No, I I really appreciate what you're saying too, right? Because it doesn't, it's, you know, they're asking a question about trying to separate out like the the trauma or the self-harm from the BDSM because it wants, you know, they want it to be this healthy experience. And what you're getting at is really like the root thing or like, let's talk about the self-harm and where that's coming from. And then kind of talk about the context of BDSM is maybe that's a place for you to explore that in a safe, consensual way. So really echoing the talking to play partners about the context that this is coming from. And then also knowing that having that conversation beforehand can really play into your aftercare, right? Because if, if they know where you're coming from, then in that aftercare, there can be some awareness of, okay, is this what you need? Let's check in on that. Let's make sure that you are leaving this session in a good place because you don't want to be leaving this BDSM um, session in a way where, you know, these emotions are still heightened or you're going to go be alone and maybe that's not a safe space for you to be in. So knowing, as you said, even if it's a way to kind of complete that stress cycle, is it fully completed so that, you know, everyone can leave feeling feeling safe and feeling grounded again? I think that's the kind of the kind of scary um, place to, to leave in and something that can be really beautiful about a, a BDSM or kink experience of just opening yourself up and allowing those emotions to move through your body in ways that we don't try and stop or block them. Like we fully express, express them in whatever way that we decide is, is going to feel pleasurable or cathartic or whatever that might, that might be for you. Yeah, I really appreciated too. uh, They're talking about how it really opened up their eyes to like a positive sex life and pleasure like beyond just penetrative sex. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. And pleasure is so much more expansive than what we traditionally call sex. You know, I'm using bunny ears right now around sex. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. It's in some ways, and the, the callers are, are very different from each other, but that same underlying emotion of doing deep care and a lot of thought and intention of where these things are coming from, you know, they're not like flippant questions of like, I don't know, I just like had a question about this. They're like, no, I've sat with this for a long time and now I'm ready to do some deep work on it and kind of unpack, you know, my mental health and my sexual health and how integrated those things are with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think if I was working with this client, I would want to really bolster and expand other emotion regulation resources Mm -hmm. because maybe she does just want this to be pleasure and arousal and doesn't want this to be an emotion regulation tool. Maybe that relationship needs some space and time to heal before it can shift. 
so expanding other ways to emotionally regulate or manage um, intense feelings could be an option if you don't want that to be a part of this. Um, but I also want to name, like you've been shamed by past sexual partners who didn't want to engage in this with you. And I, I can't imagine that that shame doesn't play in to some pieces around this. And there's absolutely no shame in however you found your way to BDSM. You know, you've, you stumbled into a, a land of pleasure and, and exploration and fun, and you're allowed to be there and do that and to find partners who are enthusiastic about that with you. It sounds like you've really identified that this is a core part of your sexuality. And uh, I'm excited for you about that. Yeah. Yeah. All those different aspects that play into our sexual identities as well, right? I think it just gets so narrow when we just talk about sexual orientation because we're only talking about the people that we are sexually attracted to. Like that's the only thing that sexual orientation talks about. It doesn't talk about our own identities. And for a lot of people, if they are into BDSM or they're kinksters, like that can be the most predominant or the most like important aspect of someone's overall sexual identity. And similarly, when we're talking about non-monogamy, for some people, that relational orientation is far more important than say, the sexual acts or desires that they have, right? So there's a really beautiful, expansive thing, you know, and they talk about being uh, pansexual, but also within BDSM and how like, the interplay of how complex and messy and pleasurable all of our sexual identities are. I just like, oh, how delicious that we get to, I don't know, be humans and experience all of these different ways that we can explore pleasure in our lives. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got a big smile on my face. It's just, <laughs> yeah, juicy, really juicy. Yeah, so juicy. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I think definitely, as you were saying before, though, having having other tools to uh, self-regulate those those emotions. And maybe that could be a way if you don't, you know, if you do want to separate that connection with BDSM being the thing that helps with regulating those big emotions. And maybe you want BDSM to exist in a world of only pleasure, of only certain things. Who knows? But really what you're saying as well, like that shame piece, you're like, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to process big emotions in BDSM as well. Like, if, if you desire those things to be separate, there are definitely ways to do that. And I think regulating emotions, having lots of tools in our toolkit is just going to serve us better. But there's many ways to to manage that throughout your life. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm having the thought too, because there might be some listeners out there who are having the opposite experience. And I want to name that, that for folks that experience like dissociation or the absence of those intense feelings as well, that things like pain or, you know, rope, uh, these different really intentional scenes, you know, impact play that they can help us get back in our body and can help us be present. It's almost like a mindfulness practice. So there may be folks out there that it's not about the big, intense feeling getting regulated, but it's actually about getting back into the body when you're dissociated or separated or just like cut off from that physical body. So I just want to acknowledge both ends of that spectrum there. Absolutely. You know, it's it's funny, like related, I'll say adjacent. Um, I got a, uh, I got a tattoo a few weeks ago and I was really nervous going into it, but absolutely what you were saying. Like, I think I, I feel my emotions quite strongly in my body, but I'm a really busy person who spends a lot of time in my brain. Um, mm-hmm. so, so much time in my head. So going and spending two hours laying on a massage table and having this like beautiful, lovely human being tattoo me and talk about like just consent and talking about sexuality and just feeling so safe and comfortable in that experience. But I had, I came out of it. My body was like humming because I was so Mm. present in that moment, in the conversation we were having, in the the sensation, some of the pain of, of getting the tattoo done. So just, just say there are lots of things we can do in our lives that really 
land us in our bodies. And for me, that's just so resonating. Like I was, people were like, oh my gosh, how was it? I'm like, I feel amazing. I feel like <laughs> euphoric right now. And I, I'm sure it was obnoxious the rest of that day. Cause I was like, everybody look at my tattoo. I feel so good. <laughs> yeah. Pain is powerful. It brings us into the present, releases endorphins, adrenaline. And that was your first tattoo, right? It was my first tattoo. So I was like, oh, what do I do? So yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm living my best queer life. I have like my, you know, my tattoo and my cuffed sleeves and I'm like, ah, oh, I just feel so good. Like, <laughs> love it. Yeah. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much for going through this journey with me. Like I just, you know, you, you have held such a safe container for us to have this conversation. So I just really appreciate and like, you know, I feel so honored that you've gone through this process with me and I want to pass it off to you for any um, thoughts that we want to leave folks with. Maybe, maybe if folks want to do a, a check-in on how you're feeling right now, but yeah, I'm going to pass it off to you for final word. Yeah. Well, and thank you for your kind words. I mean, it feels like we were meant to meet and this came together so easily and, and what a joy this has been. I've had so much fun. Yeah. Final thoughts. I think, you know, the big themes of today are around how we connect to ourselves and how we connect to others and what a deep and transformational experience that can be, particularly around being in our body. And I want to encourage anyone who is relating to always being in their heads or not being present or having really, really, really intense emotional experiences that therapy is one way to help find strategies, but there's so many options, you know, people that have a yoga practice or an exercise practice, folks that use BDSM to connect having a good laugh with your friends, you know, there's so many ways to connect to our internal experience. And just want to invite listeners, maybe like you said, when the podcast ends and the app goes quiet, take a few moments, put your hand on your heart, scan down into your body and just spend a few moments really just appreciating that you have a body and that we get to be here and do this, that I know this stuff is hard and challenging and scary and intense, um, but it's worth it. And that's life. And to experience all the delicious, juicy, scary parts of it. Um, I think, I mean, I'm a therapist. This sounds like the most therapy thing ever, but it's, it's just the best. Um, yeah. Yeah. So thank you for having me. This, this was such a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to Levi about my decision to take out my IUD and how that has impacted our sex life. Now, if you have a question, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or message me directly on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. You can also learn more about the projects that I'm involved in, what books I recommend, and the amazing folks I have on the podcast at my website, www.leahtidy.com. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.